Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Chang, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hi, thanks for having me. Why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background? So I did my bachelor's in mathematics, more specifically in combinatorics and optimization. So it's a field that's quite theoretical, but I found it really, really interesting. So it uh, relates to a lot of fields that actually are the backbones of machine learning. And so after my bachelor's, I did my master's in operations research, which is also mathematical optimization, if you know, if you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. And um, it's more the project that I worked on, it's more applied than theoretical mathematics. So we're trying to find optimal solutions for a lot of problems, essentially. But um, it takes, it's it's very computationally expensive to actually find the optimal solutions. And the research was focused on mostly, how do we make these algorithms more efficient? So can we do search? Can we find this optimal solution faster? Um, Because some of these problems, it would it would take years, essentially, to find optimal solutions. And this is just very impractical in, in the industry, in the real world. What are some examples of the kinds of problems that you were uh, working on or that that research was applied to? Yeah, so um, so these categories of problems are what we call combinatorial optimization problems. And so they have some kind of combinatorics in nature, which means that um, in in your solution, so when you have variables, the solutions could have any potential combinations. So um, let me back up a little bit, probably. So a really quick example. So if we think about the transportation systems, um, if we think about Uber, for example, so everyone is sort of on the system, and there's probably hundreds of people asking for rides at the same time, and we have hundreds of uh, Uber vehicles available. So what is the optimal assignment? So which car should you assign to which uh, person? so that we can actually maximize the whole utilities of the resources that we have. So if you think about every car and every person asking for a ride as a variable, and the assignment of a car to a variable could be a solution. So what is the optimal assignment that um, that we could do so that you know most of the people can get their rides in the shortest amount of time, for example? And like other examples are, for example, in airports, you know, you have all these uh, airport runways, you have all these airplanes, and there's like planes coming in, planes going out, and you're waiting for, um, you know, planes to take off. So how do you assign which planes go on which runway so that, you know, you minimize the wait time and things like that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I did my graduate work in electrical engineering, but one of the classes that I enjoyed the most was an OR class uh, oh, taught okay. out of industrial engineering. We did oh, spend great. a lot of the time on um, a lot of the time on linear programming and some yep. stochastic programming and things like that. 
That's exactly what I did. <laughs> okay. Oh, nice. Yeah, so, nice. Right. So, well, I guess like I focused more on um, there's another set of uh, techniques that we call constraint programming. So I, I'm not sure if you got um, if you have ever heard of it before. It's it's another set of techniques. So linear programming would probably only would work for linear constraints and there's also integer programming would work for integers mm -hmm. and then there's like this third sort of category it's and that we call constraint programming and this is um sort of what i focused on and there's a lot of other techniques where um it's like decomposition methods where you can actually decompose a problem into smaller problems to help with efficiency as well okay very cool and so how did you find your way from OR to machine learning? <laughs> right. So I would say that it's a little bit incidental. Um, so when I was finishing up my uh, my master's, I actually went to listen to a, uh, so we have a meetup here in Toronto. It's called the Machine Intelligence Meetup. Okay. And um, and it happened to be presented by Yevgeny, who, who was working here at Georgian Partners on differential privacy. Okay. Um, and so, and I found it really, really interesting. So I just started to, um, to, so, so I started a conversation with Yevgeny and, and it just went on from there. So I started at Georgian as an intern and I started working on differential privacy and machine learning as well. And I found it so interesting that, because differential, differential privacy has so much um, mathematics involved because you're thinking about the sensitivity of your algorithms. And, and this is sort of what I'm really familiar with and I think I'm pretty good at. And I was actually able to use a lot of these knowledge that I have to apply to a new field. And I found it really interesting. And the application of differential privacy is absolutely fascinating to me too as well. So how you can use techniques to inject noise so that you can keep the privacy of the of the data of your users. Uh, awesome. And so listeners by now should have heard a couple of podcasts that we've done uh, around differential privacy. And so we won't maybe go into a lot of the, the background and refer to the, the couple of previous podcasts on that. Um, but... Interestingly enough, one of the projects that you've worked on, uh, mm -hmm. a software product called Epsilon, was released earlier this month by Georgian. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about uh, that project and what its aims are? For sure. So at Georgian here, um, we really value privacy and security first as one of our thesis areas. And we definitely... Uh, so... We found differential privacy a very interesting topic, and we definitely believe that this will help a lot of our portfolio companies to distinguish themselves by having that privacy guarantee and also by enabling some other uh, possibilities by using differential privacy. So we started to do a few of these projects with, um, so, so far we've done three projects with our portfolio companies on differential privacy. And the more that we do it, we we found that, well, the more we do it, the better it gets. And we think that 
a lot other companies can actually benefit from this. And this is sort of how the the idea spin off. It's I, I guess like that's the idea of all softwares. You do it once, <laughs> you do it twice, and and you're you're thinking, oh, we should probably do a software for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and so this is sort of uh, the intuition that we have behind our the Epsilon product. So so far, we're supporting only a few algorithms, but we're really hoping to build and to expand what we currently have so that all of our all of these uh, all of our companies can benefit from this software package. Let's maybe take a step back and uh, have you talk about the three different projects that you worked on and what the the goals of those projects were. Oh yeah, absolutely. So. Um, so the three different projects, um, if I put it in a time sort of a sequential way, so we started with BlueCore and we did a second project with WorkFusion and the third one was with Integrate.ai. So in the, um, so perhaps I can start by talking about BlueCore first. Mm-hmm. So the goal was to, um, Oh, I guess you talked to Zahi as well, so you're mm-hmm. probably familiar with it. Um, but this this was the first uh, differential privacy project that we ga- we engaged on, and um, so it's like an adventure for all of us. Um, we we didn't know too much what to uh, what to expect when we went into this project, um, but the idea is that we want to explore. The possibility of enable so uh, aggregating data, and um, by actually uh, gaining the private gaining privacy guarantees um, through differential privacy, because when we aggregate data, the um, the customers of BlueCore may be worried that their data is going to be shared with other companies that they don't want to. So then. Um, so this is sort of where differential privacy can can provide that guarantee to customers. Okay. And right, so so in that particular project, as I said before, it's like an adventure for all of us. We weren't sure what to expect, so we explored a lot of different techniques, um, and we ended up by using a technique that's called the Bolton uh, differentially private technique. Um, it's it's actually written. So it, the the paper, the algorithm actually came out in March 2017, so about a year ago, and it's it was uh, developed by a group, a lab at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and uh, and so so this uh, resulted to be the best algorithm, and so. So then some of the challenges we had is, and we had a lot of um, questions around, because this is such a new concept. So there is that epsilon in this value, which we refer to as the privacy guarantee. Um, And a lot, so a lot of the questions we get is that, how does that epsilon translate to business value? So for example, like, what do you mean by a two epsilon private or 0.1 epsilon private? Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the the business questions that we had when we first introduced these differentially privacy techniques. 
and um, and then the, on the other hand is how how do we do QA or how do we test uh, these differentially private methods? So for example, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that this algorithm is differentially private and I can show you all the mathematical proofs that I've done on it. But once I launch it in the software and you know after this algorithm spits out the data, the, the results, there is really no way to test that these results are per se two epsilon private. Um, and so, so then it was quite a challenge for us to really QA um, our algorithms. So some of the steps that we did is, so we actually reached out to the authors of this paper and we had some interesting conversations. And so we had, we double ran our algorithms with them and it's it's still a quite a big challenge in today's literature in differential privacy as well. So there's there's really no way to test whether you you can I can show it mathematically on paper. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to test whether the end result is private or not. Is the idea that if you test your algorithms and your algorithms perform as they've yeah. been designed mathematically, like that they're yeah. accurate in terms of the math. And that's kind of right. the closest way to get to the the differential privacy guarantee. Yeah, that's that's exactly uh, that's exactly what we're doing right now. And that's that's what we, we believe is the closest. So there's there's a lot of uh, discussions as well. And the thing with differential privacy is that it's a probabilistic guarantee. So we we get a so the probability is within a bound, and whenever it's like it's this kind of probability guarantee, it's it's really hard to test. Um, you could be lucky, and then you could recover the, the whole database, but the probability of you doing that is very very low, essentially, and and there's really no way of testing that. Mm. And so do you attempt to run like very long tests mm-hmm. with large numbers of iterations and then try to figure out the the amount of time you're able to, to break this guarantee or in your testing, are you basically never really able to break the guarantee? And so you, you revert back to just ensuring the integrity of the algorithms mm-hmm. themselves. So currently it's, we, we are actually just, um, testing the integrity of the algorithms because it would be really hard. And I think it's a very, it's an open research problem. Mm-hmm. How do we actually test for uh, differential privacy? Mm-hmm. I think there's, there might be some new work on adversarial attacks um, to test how robust your algorithm is, but I, I'm not too familiar with that field yet. And it, it, it seems that it's it's not exactly what uh, differentiated privacy is about, and so I, I think there's definitely a lot more opportunities for research down that area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the other things that you mentioned was the the notion of kind of applying some business meaning to to the epsilon value. Can you elaborate right. on that? That hasn't come up in mm-hmm. in our my conversation so far. So differential privacy is really adding noise at different steps of your 
data analytics cycle, if you want to call it that way. And so Google and Apple, they're really trying to perturb the data at the input level. So for example, Apple uses it for, it's mostly for data collection. So for example, they want to find out what are the most frequently used emojis. And how they're doing it is that they would uh, translate all the emojis into a uh, some sort of bit encoding. And so certain bit would represent this, the smiling smiley, uh, the smiling emoji, for example. And when Apple collects the data from your phone or from your uh, from your computer, so before it gets sent to Apple, so the bit encoding of that particular emoji is actually already perturbed. So there's a probability of how of which of the bit at whatever position gets flipped. So if it was a one before, and now it becomes a zero. So this is sort of how Apple and Google collects that data. Mm -hmm. Because they're doing this, they can say that we have a guarantee that um, you know the data that you sent that you sent to us is already perturbed. So it's a private. So we we aren't able to recover what you actually really typed. Uh, in what what emoji you actually really typed. So, and then after that, they can compute the frequencies. And because they know what's the probability of which bit was flipped, they can actually sort of reverse it back to the real frequencies. And um, and because of this, this um, algorithm of, for example, calculating the frequencies based on the sensitivity, they can translate that to an epsilon value to the probability of actually recovering that. And so I believe in Apple's reports, um, so they have a different epsilon for the different uh, the different things they calculated. So for the, um, I don't have the exact number right now. Do you want me to pull it out? Oh, no, that's okay. Well that, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> and so they, they will have different uh, epsilon values. So I believe they probably range between somewhere one to eight. Okay. So when you do a differentially private data analysis, you you sort of start with choosing an epsilon value that's within the range that you're okay with. And based on that epsilon value, and you compute the sensitivity of your algorithm, and then you can compute the amount of noise that you need to inject so that you're within that guarantee, that privacy guarantee bound. So it's it's really unclear for users. For example, if Apple says um, I'm using one epsilon guarantee, if, if, even if I told you, for example, that Apple collects your data and it's one epsilon private, it doesn't really mean anything to you, right? Right, right. Mm -hmm. So I think that's also one of the challenge that this uh, community is um, needs to face and needs to explain more to to make it really transparent to to actually let the users know what does that exactly mean and so is there a direct mathematical relationship between a statement like uh, one epsilon private and uh, a percentage or probability that the information is actually private? Yeah, so it's a probabilistic guarantee, right? So there's 
So this equation or the definition of what differential privacy is, is that um, if you picture that you have two neighboring data sets uh, where they differ by one data point only, so then the equation actually says the probability of an event happening in one data set has to be less than or equal to the probability of that event happening in the other data set multiply by e to the epsilon. So that e to the epsilon is that range, sort of, if you think about it, of what's the probability of getting the same event with or without that data point. Does that... Yeah, I, does that I, I guess I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if the communication problem yeah. is, is more easily mm -hmm. addressed by saying you know, this is differentially private within 0.000x or something, as mm -hmm. opposed to talking about some multiplier on epsilon. Yeah, I think I think that could be one way. And also, like, I think definitely educating on uh, what's the impact or what does that probability indicates is also quite important, right? Okay. So, yeah. So it sounds like that what you're saying is, you know, even if you describe it in terms of a probability, the bigger issue is that, you know, what is the value, the the value to the business of right. ensuring privacy mm -hmm. to that degree anyway? That Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you, we, we went down a little bit of a, a tangent here, uh, mm -hmm. but you were talking about Blue Core. You mentioned uh, that they wanted to aggregate data into a marketplace of sorts, but yet still mm -hmm. ensure the privacy of the various participants of the marketplace. That's right. You mentioned mm -hmm. an algorithm. Was it called Bolt-On, like something bolted on? Yeah, or, yeah, that's, that's okay. Exact. So I think the algorithm, what they named it to be is the uh Bolton differentially private gradient descent, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. And presumably the idea is that you didn't have to fundamentally change a lot about your models. You just kind of bolted on this piece that provided <laughs> differential privacy. Um, so I can go a little bit into details about this algorithm as well. If, okay, uh, please. If that interests you. Okay. Um, so in differential privacy, I, I mentioned before, we can add noise at different stages of your of your machine learning model. So uh, how, what Google and Apple are doing, they, they're adding noise at the input data level. So when they're collecting data, they already inject the noise there. And another set of techniques that are called output perturbation. So like as the name tells it, we add noise at the output level of your machine learning models. So, so we first learn from this data set and then we, we get a set of weights, for example, and, and then we add noise to that set of weights. And of course, there's a lot of prerequisite to your data set. You, you have to do a lot of um, uh, data processing before you can actually apply that algorithm. And while you're learning the, the data set, there's a specific, um, there, there are specific parameters that you have to set in a certain way to, to make sure that when you do these uh, output perturbation at the end, you have that uh, differentiated privacy guarantee. And the idea of bolt-on is that 
you 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 learn as you do with the specific parameters that you have to set, and you then you bolt on the noise at the end, so that this this model is uh, differentially private. And later on, if you ship this model to other customers, if they query this model, they would not be able to recover the training data set. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a previous conversation, I had. The uh, this was with Aaron Roth. He referred mm-hmm. to uh, local versus centralized differential privacy. Is that roughly equivalent to what you're referring to as input versus output? So I think it's a, a little bit of a different notion. Okay. Um, it's it's two sets of um, they're not mutually exclusive. What I mean is that the two different you, dimensions that we're talking exactly, about here. Exactly. So you could have input and output perturbation on local, or you could also have input or output on central. Okay. So these are just, so local and central are more about the computer systems or how your devices are set up and input and output are most mostly about the machine learning cycle or the data analysis cycle. Okay. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, he used uh-huh. it in the context of the the Apple or Google use cases um, similarly. So I guess okay. in those cases, there it's both input and local, but there are other combinations that can apply in different scenarios. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the emoji example, for example, so they're both input and local. So the perturbation happens on our local devices. So before it actually gets sent to the uh, data warehouse, it's already perturbed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Yep. <laughs> uh, so that was the the blue core example. Uh, you mentioned there were a couple of other examples. Can you yep. uh, tell us about those? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, the another project that we worked on, it's it's actually got quite a similar objective that what blue core was hoping to get is also data aggregation among uh, multiple customers to help new customers or to improve the uh, the performance of the models. Um, but the challenges that we faced there were quite different from what BlueCore was facing. It's um, So we were facing actually with a large amount of data and the data was very sparse and imbalanced. So, so this is the other... Um, interesting thing about applied research is that we see all of these really cool papers and really cool algorithms, but they're all tested on toy data sets. <laughs> and, and you never know how they will really perform in real life. Like on, on paper, it looks great. It runs so fast. But in real life, so when we try to use the, the, the same... Uh, bolt-on algorithm, but with uh, so with blue core it was logistic regression, and now we're using support vector machines. So when we try to use the same bolt-on algorithm on support vector machines, it so we had a lot of technical difficulties. Okay. Um, so not only machine learning related technical uh, difficulties, but also computer difficulties. Um, so. There was a lot of engineering work done here at Georgian. And the other thing is that to because it is that it's so large, it takes several hours to just 
do one run of this algorithm. And if we wanted to test the different uh, parameters or if we wanted to test different things, like it would literally take probably a month to do all of that. So, so that was a, a really big challenge that we, uh, we faced. And, but luckily, so there's, there's also some um, analysis that we were able to done in-house here based on, you know, how, how should we set these parameters uh, based on the noise that we're getting or what's the sensitivity of this objective function, how big are our data sets. And there was, there was definitely some heuristics like rule that we had to set to set the specific parameters. And then I, the other thing I should probably mention is that, um, so in differential privacy, the hyperparametering, the hyperparameter tuning uh, has also to be done in a private way. Um, have you, okay. have you talked about this in a previous uh, Elaborate on that, please. Okay. Because uh, there, there are so parameters, I mean, for example, the um, L2 normalization parameter or um, the, C, the, the C constant. So all of these parameters that are hyperparameters that most data scientists who are uh, running machine learning models, they would do hyperparameter tuning. And in differential privacy cases, we can't just do hyperparameter tuning and pick the best parameter because it actually may leak some information uh, of your training data set because you're learning from this data set. So for example, if we pick the L2 normalization, so if I, uh, if I call it lambda, if I picked it to be 0.1 and that 0.1 actually represents and it's learned from this particular data set. So if we picked it based on the best um, the best parameter, then we're probably leaking some information about the training data set. So there, there's definitely a lot of research on how to do private uh, hyperparameter tuning as well. So there's, and but they're very expensive as well. And other researchers have recommended to use public data set or other data sets to tune your parameters before, and then just pick these parameters for your model. So these are some of the ways. And we sort of went in between so that we were able to do some analysis on the noise that we should inject, how, how can we, uh, minimize the noise based on the based on how big the data sets are and based on what algorithms that we're using and and then go from there and just pick the the best that we think would fit this particular model okay mm -hmm. um so to make sure i understand what you're saying there um basically to in order to do the differential privacy, you're injecting noise, but you have to you use, you figured out some set of heuristics to tell you how much noise to inject based on the mm -hmm. problem. Is that the right way to hear what you're saying? I, I would say without going too much into the mathematical details. So the amount of noise is actually, uh, it's an equation of the sensitivity of the algorithm of the, 
the bound, some of the upper bounds on the uh, first and second derivatives of your objective function. And so because we know this relationship of the noise to some of the other parameters, then we can sort of calculate, you know, for example, increasing the batch sizes would actually decrease the, the noise um, or so other things like that. So that you know, we could sort of control. So if we set the batch size to be a slightly larger number, so without disturbing how fast the the uh, the algorithm will converge to the optimal solution, um, we can set the batch sizes to be a little bit larger so that we can actually reduce the amount of noise. And the intuition is that if we reduce the amount of noise, the performance of the model would be slightly better than a bigger amount of noise. So that's sort of uh, some of the intuitions behind. So there's there is some analysis on um, the relationship of the amount of noise injected to the other properties of the algorithm that we can actually derive and then pick a point, pick a place or pick, um, pick the position of that specific parameter that um, that both parties are comfortable with without sacrificing too much of the performance and still having that same level of privacy guarantee. Okay. Does that clear up? Or? Uh, I think so. What, I, okay. what I'm taking away from that is mm-hmm. that you've got some mathematical kind of uh, bounds uh, and mm-hmm. principles that tell you the how much noise you need to inject but uh the specifics the specific implementation decisions like batch sizes and things like that can change that and you've figured out some techniques for i guess mapping the you know the mathematically determined noise you know back through your implementation decisions so that you can minimize the actual noise that you're injecting yep yeah okay so that's two of the the projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, were there any additional uh, learnings in the third project that you mentioned that uh, uh-huh. you know went into setting the stage for Epsilon? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, so the third the third project is um, so it's a little bit different because this the third project was more of a learning project rather than so we did not do any data aggregation and. We it was more about learning how does changing epsilon affects the outcome or the performance of the model. Um, so it was more of an exploratory project to really help us understand um, how does the different parameters really impact the uh, performance of a model. So we actually plot this plot and it looks like an exponential an, an exponential curve where that you know if you have a very small epsilon value then the performance drop is um, quite high but then as your epsilon value increases to a point then it's the 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 performance is almost the same as um, your the the performance without differentiated privacy. Okay, and you, so you use that to figure out where you want your epsilon to be to kind of maximize the benefit. 
Right, that's right. And but that that would actually also differ. Uh, it'll be different based on different data sets or different algorithms. But it's it's really for us or a sanity check to to make sure or to see how it actually impacts on some real world data sets. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Epsilon, I'm sure everyone gets the the joke now around the naming of the, <laughs> the software. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. what, what exactly is it? Is it a set of tools that help people kind of um, apply some of the things that you've learned in these projects? Is it uh, a set of models that are differentially private kind of out of the box? What's the right way to think about what Epsilon is, is offering? So the right way to think about or... I want to say that we're still building. So this this pro, this uh, this product is still expanding, and as of now, currently, so what we hope it to be is a software package that um, you know that sits in a some kind of code repository that users can go on and download the package and. You know, it's it's just like a package that you would download, like Scikit-Learn, and in and then in Python you can just call, you know, you can just create a model, for example, differentially private logistic regression, and then you can just call the model and fit the model. So it it would be like a package, like a code package that you that users could download, mm-hmm. and um and just it, it should be very easy to use as well. Mm. Okay. Uh, that's funny. I think I asked, uh, Aaron Roth about packages like Mm -hmm. that. And and if he saw Mm -hmm. that, uh, proliferating before I really understood what Epsilon Uh was trying to do. And it sounds like, it sounds like it, it is intended to be a, well, a package, I guess, but, but it is, these are differentially private models that users can use in, in their data pipelines and, so right now it supports logistic regression and uh, SVMs, I'm assuming, That's, and yep. you're, over time you'll expand that to include mm-hmm. more algorithms. Is that the idea? That's yeah. That's exactly the idea. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about the the user experience, right? You mm-hmm. uh, you've clearly learned a ton in these right. different deployments, and it doesn't sound like you know someone could you know, without having this knowledge, just kind of grab something like Epsilon off the shelf and, you know, uh, kind of yeah. swap it in for scikit-learn. So <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, under, I totally understand that. So um, the idea for us for the package is that it should be very easy to use. But on the other hand, uh, and that's what I also believe is that, Users should not take these packages and just use them. Everybody should have some prior knowledge or they should be willing to learn some knowledge before they can use it. So I've seen seen a lot of um, cases where, um, especially now that data science is so so prevalent, is that people would grab these scikit-learn examples and just run some models and without really knowing the mechanics behind the model and they perceive the model to be accurate where it's actually not. And so so I guess what, what we ideally want is we want to create something that's easy to use that user can 
that they would have a good experience using it. But at the same time, they should still have that prior knowledge. Um, at least they should know what what would be a good differentiated private model so that they, they aren't just blindly creating models that maybe they perceive to be good, and but re- in reality, they may not be. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I guess like uh, another set of um, so we're also planning on launching playbooks and also a lot of tutorials so that people can go through them and make sure that they have all the prior knowledge that they need in order to to apply that. And once they learn that, they sh- it should be very easy to to employ epsilon. Okay. Mm-hmm. Are there a set of core uh, papers that you think someone should have a a solid grasp on before they try to uh, use a tool like Epsilon? I would say, so the the research or the hardcore math would be our job. So we would try to make sure, so we would make sure that all of these proofs or prerequisites are satisfied before users can use this uh, particular product. But if they're, um, if, I mean, if listeners or users are interested to learn about the mathematical foundations of the the differential privacy techniques, there's definitely tons of uh, papers out there. And um, there are also so there's sort of two categories of papers out there on differential privacy. So one set is more about um, data analysis. So when you're actually querying a database, so when you're calculating the frequencies of something happening in a database. And the second set is more on machine learning specific. Right. And, um, and there's a... A sort of uh, what we call empirical risk minimization, so differentiated privacy for empirical risk minimization, and um, I believe there are, there are few papers. So, if you would just Google empirical risk minimization, you would find these papers that would go in very much details about how do we actually assess the sensitivity of um, logistic regression, for example. And based on that sensitivity, how should we add noise? What what is the magnitude of the noise that you need to add? And so these papers will definitely get into the technicalities and the mathematical backgrounds of of that specific um, algorithm. And and actually, the Bolton paper is also available, and um, and the Bolton paper refers to a lot of these empirical risk minimization papers that um, you will be able to get these background information as well. But the idea is that uh, at least eventually, I don't, I shouldn't need to know the kind of full mathematical foundations Mm -hmm. in order to apply differential privacy to my use case, there'll be more accessible Mm -hmm. materials available uh, for developers. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, um, so these mathematical foundations, um, that's what we are trying to take care of so that we can offer something that, users can use without actually having to dig too deep into the mathematical equations. 
And so, so we're, we're, we're trying to skip that or we're trying to help with the, this part so that it'll be uh, quite easy for users to use that. And so all, the, all these papers I mentioned earlier is uh, for people who are really interested in the mathematics behind differential privacy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, any uh, additional thoughts in terms of the the direction for epsilon in particular or differential privacy in general? I, I guess like as we work on epsilon, we really hope to bring more algorithms. And one of the major research areas that uh, that could be very interesting is um so, so far, we've more focused on traditional machine learning uh, algorithms, but how about deep learning or how about neural networks? And um, these could be very interesting, interesting topics as well. So traditional machine learning algorithms were easier to analyze because they have all this mathematical structures. We can analyze on the convexity of that particular objective function, for example. But when we get to deep learning, that sort of realm uh, falls apart and we have to think of different ways of doing differentially private techniques. So that's that's definitely one of the future areas that I think could be very interesting. Awesome. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, Chang, thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation. And um, I, I wish you and the team the best of luck with Epsilon. Great. Thank you so much, Sam. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Chang or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 135. Thanks again to our friends at Georgian Partners for sponsoring this series, and be sure to visit their Differential Privacy Resource Center at gptrs.vc slash twimlai for more information on the field and what they're up to. Of course, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.